My name is Ashok Kotwal. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Ideas for India. And this is one of our conversations in the ongoing series. And today we are talking to Dr. Pranab Sen, who's um, currently the Program Director of International Growth Center. But he's also occupied a ringside seat on government's policymaking. He's been an advisor to the Planning Commission, is the Chief Statistician to Government of India. And uh, he's a frequent commentator on various talk shows and interviewed quite frequently uh, on TV. And since he's one of our own, thought, why don't we ask him about these confusing times? After uh, a year or two of uh, very steep declines in uh, economic activity in India due to COVID, uh, we have very optimistic forecast uh, right now. The union budget was presented on February 1st by our finance minister. And uh, there are many commentators who have lauded it as a growth budget, some people have actually expressed great concern about its uh, impact on the general public uh, and the poor especially. And for a lay person, it's a very confusing scenario. Should we be optimistic? Even the Reserve Bank of India is uh, uh, looking at the present times through a very optimistic lens. As a big surprise to uh, many people, they have in fact decided that the inflation is not going to be a big threat and the monetary policy committee has decided to keep the repo rates at the same level rather than being alarmed by the inflationary pressures all over the world. I would first like to ask uh, Pranam about the budget itself. Now, of course, every year, there is a new budget and economic survey. And uh, what it gives us is uh, the general direction that the economic policy is oriented toward. And then people kind of uh, try to figure out what the outlook is for the economy and make their own decisions. So let me, let me uh, just start with some basic questions. Why is this budget being considered a growth budget? And even RBI is saying our monetary policy even is not going to worry about inflation so much as facilitating growth. Now, Pranab, you have actually said in the past that what you fear is that the recovery is going to be a K-shaped recovery with um, inequalities growing in India. So from a common man's point of view, let me ask you this. The hallmark of this budget and why it's called growth budget is an... Uh, expansion in infrastructure, uh, the capital expenditure in building infrastructure, especially the transport networks, highways, railway, and so on. And so the main uh, dangers that uh, worry a common man, Aam Admi, is uh, the economy is not creating many jobs. Plus, uh, crucial sectors like health and education we're not making much progress and uh, deficiencies in our health system were really 
laid bare through the COVID epidemic. Same with um, the educational system. We are not able to offer a decent primary education and then everything else, the skilling of the workforce, etc., follows. So first of all, let me ask you, this drive to build infrastructure, is it really going to solve our problem of joblessness or is it going to make a dent? Because uh, right now, the surplus labor in agriculture is just accumulating. They, they, they don't have jobs outside agriculture. And there is a very strong resentment as borne out by several news items, how many millions apply for few jobs in uh, railway, etc. So what is, first of all, likely to happen as far as this joblessness is concerned by building infrastructure that is proposed? Thanks, Ashok. Before I answer your specific question, I really need to take our viewers back to what is the nature of the Indian economy and what is the the fundamental characteristic of the problem that we are facing at the moment. Joblessness is an outcome. The critical element out here is the fact that the Indian economy is a dual economy in a very real sense. You have the corporate sector in India which is very modern, very competitive, and does not create jobs. And then you have the medium and the micro and small enterprises and the informal sector, which is where the bulk of the job, about 40% of the jobs are created. The real issue, when one looks at the claims of creating jobs, is not whether there is an overall trend in terms of the budgetary uh, outlays towards creating economic activities that will create jobs. It is which economic activities and by whom. Now, in most countries, which economic activities is important? In the Indian context, the whom is even more important. Are the sort of things which are being pushed, are they the ones which these micro and small enterprises can piggyback on and take advantage of. And that's where the problem lies. It lies in the detail. Now, what is interesting about this budget is, as you said, that the budget has been presented essentially as a budget of investments with the capital expenditure of the central government going up by 35%. And that has got a lot of people very excited about it. But we need to look at that a little carefully. Is it really that? Or is there a packaging which gives an impression which may not necessarily be the economic impact? At the heart of all of this is really a classification issue. Now, in our budgets, we present two kinds of classification. One is a classification which is an accounting classification. And the accounting classification essentially says the following. Any expenditure which is for capital purposes is classified as capital. The rest is revenue. So that's one level of classification. The second level of classification in budgetary terms is that when the federal government or the central government in India gives assistance to others to do the work which is the states in the Indian context, 
There, the budgetary classification is essentially that if you are giving a grant to the state, then it is treated as a revenue expenditure or a current expenditure of the central government and will later be treated as a capital expenditure of the state governments if the state spend the money in that manner. And any transfer which is in the nature of a loan is automatically treated as a capital expenditure, regardless of its end use. Then you have the economic classification, which does not look at the nature of the transfer and looks only at the purpose for which the transfer has been used. Is it for capital formation or for current expenditures? The problem with the budget and the way the budget has been presented and talked about is that it has actually mixed up these two fairly clear distinctions that exist. So at one level, they have used the accounting classification so that the loan to the states is treated as capital expenditure. On the other side, they've taken grants which have been given to states for capital formation and included it as a capital expenditure of the central government. Now, you can't have it both ways. Follow one or the other, or even better, report it in terms of consolidated government, which is center plus states. They're not doing that. Just to clarify, uh, yeah. so the, in, in the present budget, uh, 2 trillion rupees uh, increase, 1 trillion is given to the states as loans. Right? And in the economic sense, it should really not be classified because th- this means that the states have to pay the center back at some point. Yes. In and, terms of accounting classification, Ashok, that is a capital expenditure right. of the central government. Right. But I think accounting classification matters less to people who are trying to understand what's going on. Economic <laughs> classification makes much more sense. Yes. But the rhetoric, Ashok, is equally important. What is the impression that you are trying to convey in terms mm. of the direction of the budget? Right. And this is a part of the rhetoric. So, in fact, from the economic point of view, leaving the rhetoric aside, the increase in the capex, capital expenditure, is not as large as claimed to be in the We do not know. This is essentially the point. What the government has said is that we are providing 1 trillion rupees for capital expenditure by the state governments. So in a sense, that time, that money mm. to capital expenditure, it should, has to be shown as capital expenditure. Okay, fair enough. So it is capital expenditure on the central government's budget. If the states comply with the conditionalities, it will be capital expenditure at the state level. So that is consistent. Right. The question is, what are the states going to do? Will they use this money as additional capital expenditure or will they take existing uh, capital expenditure plans and And load it onto this head Mm. and use the money saved thereby for current expenditures. Right. Right. Right? We do not know and we will not know until Mm. the state budgets come in. Right. Right. Okay. But the likelihood of the latter happening is very, very high because the states are the ones who are predominantly responsible 
for almost all current right. expenditures for development purposes. So when you're talking about healthcare, when you're talking about education, the capital part of it is only building the facilities. Yes. The bulk of the cost, which is delivering education and delivering healthcare, are all current expenditures. Right. right. And all of that is borne by the states. So what the states can and will probably do is that they will identify whatever capital expenditure they were planning to do, load it onto this one trillion part of it, right. and divert the money for current expenditure purposes. Now, coming back to the question of uh, job creation, um, I mean, as you said correctly, finally, what matters is uh, what kind of jobs and what sort of people will they additional employment be created for. And uh, it has been really the curse of Indian economy that the sectors that really took off after liberalization were sectors which were high-skilled sectors and they created jobs for a very thin uh, upper crust of the population, programmers, managers, etc., but did not create the jobs which were suitable for a multitude of excess labor accumulating in agriculture. Now, with the infrastructural problems, I mean, one would think that uh, construction, for example, does employ a lot of semi-skilled or um, unskilled people. Would it really create jobs for the low-skilled, unskilled people, which is what we desire? Well, it could. It could. Mm. But, you know, the problem is we tend to think of infrastructure as some kind of a homogeneous activity. Mm. It isn't. Mm. There's infrastructure and then there's infrastructure. Mm. Right? So take, for instance, just to give you an extreme example, building a new swanky airport mm. is infrastructure. Building about 3,000 kilometers of rural roads, which will cost roughly the same amount, mm. is also infrastructure. Now, take a guess which one creates jobs and which one doesn't, right? It's in the nature of the infrastructure that is being created that the intensity of employment depends. So if you're creating large facilities with uh, very high levels of technology, all of that is by its very nature, I mean, it cannot be done otherwise, is going to essentially be driven by mechanization of various forms. And indeed, even beyond that, where the labor is employed is in basic construction activities, which is better served by small projects which are being created by local contractors, hiring local labor, that's where the jobs are created. So it's not enough to know how much is going into infrastructure. It's even more important to know what kind of infrastructure. Now, this emphasis on infrastructure building was also there toward the tail end of UPA2 regime. And uh, there it was this uh, PPP, private-public partnership projects, where um, a road would be built in partnership with uh, private uh, business, 
in anticipation that once you build this road at the end of it, uh, there'll be growth of industry. And then if it's a toll road, that's a conduit to which the private uh, partner will be incentivized and so on. So they build it and then they will come, but they never came. And then the many projects were abandoned. And uh, in fact, that created this twin balance sheet problem where the loans could not be paid back and it really affected banking system, especially the public sector banks. What is different this time? Why are such fears not being expressed now? Well, by and large, I think the PPP model that you're talking about, Ashok, was in a sense ill-conceived because I think there was an implicit assumption that the private sector was capable of judging what the economic returns, not the national returns, but specific commercial return would be to the investor. They were not capable of doing it, and which led to the kind of problems you're talking about. There was excessive exuberance. The private sector bid absolutely ridiculous sums to get these projects and then found that they couldn't generate the revenue streams that they had hoped for. The PPP model seems to have been sort of shelved for the moment. And the model that they're doing is that they're going to be constructing these facilities. And hopefully at some future point in time, they will then hand them over on an auction basis to the private sector to manage rather than construct and own. That's a completely different model. The second model, in an important sense, I think is a very important first step into a proper PPP model, which is to get the private sector used to evaluating the commercial returns that can come from infrastructure. The Indian private sector is simply not used to it. And the experience that they had that you were talking about, where the stream of income from these projects was insufficient, and which led to the twin balance sheet problem, That was the beginning of the education. But the point is that education requires textbooks. And uh, one of the ways to actually create a textbook is to hand it over to to them to manage. Mm -hmm. And hopefully they'll learn how to evaluate infrastructure projects in commercial terms. So that so much about the uh, infrastructure. You pointed out that uh, 40% of the jobs are really created in this MSME sector. Right. So how would the government make sure that these jobs are created in MSME sector? As far as I see in the present budget, there is an infusion of something like 2 trillion rupees into the MSME sector. Plus, uh, there is a credit cover so that uh, MSME uh, units can borrow. And given the infusion, the lenders, the banks will be more willing to lend them the money. Beyond that, what could government have done to help the MSME sector? Very little. Hmm. Uh, Frankly, the government does not have direct instruments to address the MSME sector. It's very limited. The measures that you mentioned are ways of, of addressing the MSME problem. The real issue is in the nature of the problem. So, you know, you talked about the two trillion infusion. It's not really a $2 trillion infusion. What it is, is that there was a window that was created for $3 trillion, which has now been raised to $5 trillion, 
of which half a trillion is being reserved for the hospitality sector. That's how it's been laid out. The problem, of course, is that the original three trillion, which had been announced two years ago, in fact, in 2020, uh, just after the lockdown, that itself has not been exhausted. So first, we need to see that the demand for these loans that the banks would be giving going up to three trillion. But just to say that I've provided five trillion does not necessarily mean that it's going to be effective. The effectiveness will be only what happens over and above three trillion. That we will know only in the fullness of time. That's number one thing. Number two problem is on the conditionalities of this infusion. The only ones who will be eligible to get this infusion are MSME units, which have not been declared as non-performing loans. Which means that you're in any case cherry picking those who have survived. Mm. But those units which have died and who employ a very large number of people are not going to be revived through this. Because they would have been classified as a non-performing loan on the uh, books of the bank and the banks will not lend them further funds, guaranteed or not guaranteed. So they should have been saved just at the time they were dying. If this had happened earlier, yes. Now, this is the point that is being missed. You know, when the pandemic started and when this particular scheme was announced, it worked very well. But when the second wave hit us, and then you didn't have a national lockdown, but we did have localized lockdowns. So state governments were declaring lockdowns, which were just as destructive. But at that point in time, there was no effort to save these. Now we are practically one year after the second wave. In one year, a lot of units would have closed. We are now coming up with this. I'm not sure that's going to help. I think the focus should have been on how do you bring new entrepreneurs into the MSME sector? That should have been the focus. Which, by the way, Ashok, if you remember, when Mr. Modi became Prime Minister in, in 2014, one of the first things he announced were what, what were called the Mudra loans, which was essentially loans to help people start new businesses. Right. That's what we need today. And that's not what's been given. Another uh, step that uh, the government is very proud of is uh, through which uh, they hope to create many jobs. Finance minister said 60 lakh jobs uh, over five years is uh, this PLI, performance linked uh, incentive scheme. Incentive. Now, can you explain a bit what the idea is and how they uh, intend to implement it? This is to largely invite. Uh, uh, foreign know-how, foreign investment in uh, various uh, sectors. So what is performance-linked incentivized? The performance-linked has really got to do with a commitment towards how much you ramp up your production from your current levels. 
which involves the whole gamut of things of, of investment and employment mm. and so on mm. and so forth. But it is essentially linked to the degree to which you ramp up your production from current levels. But the PRI scheme, the way it has been designed, is again for corporate India. It's not for the MSME sector. The real question is, is there enough backward linkage from the corporates to the MSME sector so that the PLI then, in a sense, quote-unquote, trickles down to the sector which actually creates jobs? Now, that is something that we have to see because that's a business model that's not been specified in the PLI scheme. The PLI scheme is holding corporate India responsible for achieving certain production targets. But because of the labor laws, etc., a lot of this subcontracting uh, does happen that way. Corporate India subcontracts the MSME sector to do various uh, parts. Yes, it does. In fact, a very large proportion of MSME India are really ancillaries to corporate. Yes. Yeah, right. The real question is the speed at which this backward transmission can happen. So if the corporates are going to ramp up, they will need their ancillaries to ramp up as well. Right? Which means that the ancillaries have to get fresh funds to be able to increase their production. Where is that money going to come from? The banks are already hesitant. And by the way, the PLI scheme is working. So there's been a fair amount of demand from the MSMEs on the banks to extend money, right? The question is the banks are still reluctant. They are very risk averse and understandably so. So, so far the experience has been good. So far the experience has not been bad at all, yes. But as I said, it is that linkage. The, The employment will not be created by the corporates. It will be created by the ancillaries. The question is, will the ancillaries be able to ramp up quickly enough, given the hesitancy in the banking sector? I see. Has it created interest in foreign investment? Not significantly. There's some, but nothing which is noteworthy. Yeah, because there is a talk about inviting foreign investment. uh, Whenever prime minister visits a foreign country, he talks about, you know, how the ease of doing business um, become uh, so much more attractive for foreign investment. It should be and so on. But at the same time, this uh, Atmanirbhar policy, which seems to me uh, protectionism with another name. No, no, it's not another name, Ashok. It's not another name at all. Uh, except it's just been translated into Hindi. We used to call it self-reliance <laughs> okay. in the 1950s and 1960s. Yeah. And this is a literal translation of that term. Yeah. So, but given that, wouldn't it discourage foreign investment? I mean, you, you know, if you're going well, to... That, that has been our experience, right? Yeah. We tried the protectionist past. Now we are bringing protectionism into the present. In the middle, we had moved away from it, hmm. which is when the foreign investment started coming in. Of course, in the past, there were all kinds of other barriers as well, uh, you know, including having to seek uh, approvals of the government. So there was a cherry picking problem that that used to exist, which doesn't exist at the moment. 
But you know, in economics literature, there is a concept called tariff jumping. But tariff jumping in the economics literature, again, is always associated with suboptimal production. That is, you set up a unit which is just about enough to cater to the domestic demand and not create the kind of enterprises which address the global market, which presumably is the intent of the policy. Okay, so, so much about the job creation part of it. At the outset, when the budget came out, um, it surprised many of us, partly because it had followed a, a tremendous uh, uh, upheaval in the farm sector. There were these huge farmer protests and then the farm laws were repealed. And yet there was very little about agriculture in the budget. Similarly, COVID had wrecked the country and it kind of exposed our uh, lack of uh, preparedness to handle a pandemic like COVID. And yet uh, rebuilding the healthcare system is certainly not part of the union budget. Education, the same thing. We've been trying, I mean, for how many years now? 75 years since independence. And what every Asian country has been able to do is offer a decent primary education to every child in the country. We failed at doing that. So given these three important areas, agriculture, health, and uh, education, there's hardly been a peep in the union budget. But I think uh, it's still been politically very clever budget because all these three are state subjects. Even during the farmers' protests, uh, many commentators pointed out that why isn't this left to the states? Why is the union government uh, forcing their will on the states? It's best done at the state level. So now government can say, yeah, you know, like that's what the people wanted. That was the right thing to do. And the state subjects have gone to the states. Now the question is, of course, uh, have the states been given enough resources to tackle these very important issues? No, that is the characteristic of this budget. So what has happened? I mean, you know, there is a lot that has been made of this one trillion rupee loan, interest-free 50-year loan mm. that is going to be given to the states for capital formation. What is not mentioned, and certainly not mentioned in the speech, uh, and people have to dig around a little bit for it, is how have they generated the resources for this one trillion transfer and yet be able to bring down the fiscal deficit quite significantly by half a percent of GDP. And the answer is that they have cut the other transfers to the states. And guess where those other transfers were going? They're going essentially into education and health. So what they've done in effect is they have shifted the responsibility onto the states in terms not just the constitutional responsibility for delivery, but the responsibility for financing it. So they've given with one hand for capital formation and taken away with, with the other hand from precisely the kinds of things you're talking about. So the question that we have to answer as economists which of the two will have the greater effect? The increase in capital expenditure 
or the decrease in the funds available for agriculture, health, and education? And the answer seems to be negative, that in fact, uh, states don't have enough resources. They've not been given enough resources. So the problems will be back with us. What has happened is very simple, which is that the problem has essentially been shoved onto the lap of the states. We don't know how the states are going to react to it because their budgets will come out only in March. And by the time March arrives, we'd have forgotten all of this stuff. Now, you had said in one of your interviews that you expect this to be a K-shaped recovery. Can you elaborate a bit on this? No, I, I didn't say that I expect it to be a K-shaped recovery. What I did say, Ashok, is that it is a K-shaped recovery and will continue and will in fact get accentuated over time. And what I meant by that is that if you look at the nature of the recovery that we have had, corporate India has bounced back very quickly and very strongly. Non-corporate India, which is the MSMEs plus the informal sector, is doing badly. One of the effects of this is that corporate India has actually taken over a significant chunk of the market share that the MSMEs used to have. The reason I expect this to continue is number one, nothing has been done for uh, the MSME sector in the budget, but the corporate sector has been given further support. So you've made an already unbalanced relationship even more unbalanced. That's number one. Number two, having gained the market share, the corporates are going to fight tooth and nail to retain it. They're not going to allow the MSMEs to come back very easily because they know that will lead to a reduction in their market. So what I do expect to see is that the MSMEs trying to come back, facing stiff resistance, so that their process of recovery is going to be slow. And the corporates will try to keep consolidating their position and indeed expanding it even further. But here you are kind of looking at corporate sector in competition with the MSME sector. They are. But it's also to the extent that uh, MSME sector get their business from corporates it's a complementary sector. And uh, yes, I mean, you're taking me back to what I said that, yes, a large chunk of the MSME sector are ancillaries to the corporates. Right. Right. But there is a large chunk who are in direct competition. And this is particularly true for rural and semi urban India, where the MSMEs had a very strong presence. Those are the areas that have now been taken up by the corporates. And that's what they're not going to be willing to give up. I would like to uh, end by asking you about the latest uh, decision by the Monetary Policy Committee. Did it surprise you? Yes. Well, it didn't, it didn't really surprise me. In, in a sense, it left me confused. You know, one of the things that has happened over the past is that earlier the Reserve Bank of India used to love shocking the market 
they wouldn't give any indication of what they were about to do and suddenly do something. Hmm? Then we moved to a system where the RBI would give you a feel for how they see the future and how they would act. Today, we have a situation where the RBI has been taking no action, including the MPC. But look at what's happening to interest rates in the country. Yields on government securities have gone up by nearly a full percentage point. Right? Bank interest rates are moving up. All the while, the RBI is holding the repo and the repo rate constant. They are continuing to say that they have an accommodative policy. But those which are under your control are giving exactly the opposite signal. So I see a disjuncture between the words and the actions of what RBI is doing. And I don't like the direction in which it is going. The RBI should have given advance notice that we are going to let interest rates move up. If nothing else, the stance should have been changed. But this again seems to be the RBI of the 1970s and 80s. I must say, I don't quite understand the way, uh, you know, monetary policy uh, thinks or is supposed to think, monetary policy committee. But um, the emphasis seems to be that um, we are flush with foreign reserves and a lot of the uh, debt is uh, domestically owned, not owned by foreigners. And given that, we should feel safe from what's happening outside. Certainly, there are uh, inflationary expectations all over the world. Federal Reserve is increasing their rates. Uh, European banks, Bank of England has already done so. Um, given that what can happen, well, you know, the foreign capital won't come in. Maybe Indian capital will flee a bit, but we are pretty much insulated from the outside pressures. To what extent this sort of assumption can justify the decision? No, to, uh, we, we know exactly what happened during the taper tantrums, right? So we are not invulnerable to what happens in the rest of the world. Let's be very clear on that. But the fact of the matter is, whereas they are talking about raising their interest rates, interest rates in India have already gone up. We are ahead of the rest of the world, not behind. So if the Fed raise, raises the interest rate, I don't expect it to have any effect on India because they'll do what? 20 basis points? We've already done 90 basis points. Not announced, but on the ground, that's what it is. I mean, I remember uh, you were prescribing that uh, Indian government should use the fiscal policy for growth and monetary policy for containing inflation. Now, both of them are supposedly uh, engaged in uh, promoting growth. That's what the RBI governor has just said. Yeah. So, um, so what's going to be the net impact, one would think? No, you know, <laughs> this is what I find a little bizarre. What is really happening is that there is an unstated, and I repeat, unstated rollback 
of both fiscal and monetary policy. So the fiscal policy has started the process of fiscal consolidation already. Monetary policy, as I said, under the radar has allowed interest rates to go up significantly. So the talk about both of them supporting growth is talk. If you really look at what both fiscal and monetary policy is doing, is what is politely known as normalization. Okay. <laughs> On that note, I think we are coming to the end of our loud time. Thank you very much, uh, Pranab. I mean, uh, anytime I'm confused, you are the best person to go to. I've decided over years of experience. And uh, this is much clearer picture right now than uh, when we started the dialogue. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ashok. I enjoyed it very yeah. much. Yeah. And let's hope our viewers enjoy it too.